Well, now I have to ask that whole volume question again. All right. Uh, so week two in Advent, uh, in the cycle we're doing this year, we're doing hope. So the two texts are John 5. Uh, we'll read 16 through 21 and 31 through 47. And then we're going to return back to Luke 2, specifically 8 through 12. All right, so let's start with John 5, and we'll read 16 through 21, and then 31 through 47. Now, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews began to persecute him. Jesus answered them, To this very day my father is at his work, and I too am working. Because of this, the Jews have tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus replies, truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the father doing it. For whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. And to your amazement, he will show him even greater works than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wishes. I testify about myself. My testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. And you, uh, move it where 31 was if I testify about myself. 33, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Even though I do not accept human testimony, I say to you these things so that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you were willing for a season to bask in this light. But I have given testimony more substantial than that of John for the works of my father has given me to accomplish. The very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You've never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word abide in you, because you do not believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. These are the very words that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you have not received me. If someone else comes in my name, you will receive him. How can you believe if you accept glory from one another, yet do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. If you had believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? And then uh, Luke 2, 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying, or cloths and lying in a manger. So if you weren't here last week, we started uh, the Advent cycle by transitioning from our series on the Messianic secret and parables in the Gospel of Mark to thinking about the coming of Jesus in the form of a teeny vulnerable human infant. And so, you know, to get us into the season, uh, we're doing the uh, faith, hope, joy, love cycle for Advent. It's different from the cycle we've done in the past. We've also talked about uh, in, uh, in, in, in that first sermon episode from the Gospel of Mark, uh, namely uh, around amazement um, and, and, and then by extension around faith. So we talked about Jesus walking on the water 
and Jesus confronting the Pharisees after uh, the feedings on the shores of the lake. And, uh, well, I don't know. So the basic shtick of the whole thing was twofold. So uh, the first one is uh, that the idea of amazement uh, is a big deal in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Mark and, funnily enough, in the Advent story. So the thing we talked about last night is, or last week, is that in the Gospel of Mark, there's like, I don't know, uh, in the stories we looked at, there's two basic kinds of amazement. So uh, one kind of amazement was the amazement that the disciples experienced when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And it's, you know, this old Greek word that kind of, I don't know, uh, phantasma, like our word for fantasy or like the word for phantasm. It was a kind of amazement that was like you saw something and you weren't quite sure whether or not it was real. You weren't quite sure whether or not you were fooling yourself, like it could have been hallucination or an apparition. But the kind of thing we saw from it as we looked at all the different ways that the Gospel of Mark tried to say without directly saying, this is God, like passing in front of the folks on the shore and walking on the water and all the different things we talked about, that that kind of amazement prevented the disciples from really internalizing who Jesus was. That's the kind of amazement of like being out of your mind, feeling the Greek word literally means to be like knocked out of your mind. It's the idea that not like, like you kind of can't believe what you're seeing, uh, maybe it's too unbelievable or too good to be true. So I called that uh, quite creatively amazement one. Yeah, see? That's... Uh, and then the, the little pericope following that episode in last week's reading, we looked at the Pharisees. And uh, spoiler alert, amazement two, their amazement at Jesus' feeding and healing people. And just like in the case of him being rejected in his hometown, there's this word, that got translated as amazement, that is not quite like, wow, isn't this awesome, but is more like the idea that what you're hearing is not quite believable. So uh, if amazement one is, I'm not certain that what I'm seeing can be real, amazement two is, uh, is also an ek or an out of word, but it's like to uh, not quite to be knocked out of your minds. It's like someone is so out of place that you can't quite understand what they're saying. So when we looked at Jesus in his hometown and when we looked at the Jesus Uh, talking to the Pharisees in both instances, the basic claim was like, a person like you cannot be saying these things credibly. And so, you know, the Pharisees kind of run through all the same stuff that they'd run through before. They're, They're amazed by Jesus, but not in the sense of changing their understanding or not in the sense of kind of like trying to process what's going on. They're amazed by him as a way of kind of discounting him because you know, like I, I coined the, well, other people have used the term too, but like it's an identity risk. If the Pharisees were to believe that what Jesus was doing, if they were to truly be amazed by it in a way that transformed themselves, they would have to change their lives. And so, I don't know, like uh, amazement too is the idea that you're amazed with yourself. You're amazed with, your, you're totally invested in the situation that you're in. And when something comes and kind of breaks you out of it, like, I don't know, Jesus coming and healing people or claiming implicitly that he's the Messiah, instead of not believing what Jesus is saying, you're just saying, well, this guy can't be the guy. This doesn't confirm with our traditions that you have an amazement in yourself that gets in the way of being amazed with Jesus. And then, I don't know, so the antidote was, uh, at least for last week and the week about kind of faith or belief, was the shtick about how when we think about faith, we're like trying to figure out, can I make a probabilistic justification for a proposition? Like, I want to say that theology is about things that I ought to believe and I want to pile up evidence. And if I get enough evidence there, I'm in good shape. And that's not how the Gospels really talk about the idea of faith. The, the, the Gospels presume that the Jesus event is real, that God is incarnate in this baby. The, 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 the Gospels presume that those things are facts. The Gospels 
presume that those are the, not the things that need to be proved, that the real problem for human beings is not justifying the existence of Jesus. It's how we respond to it. It's that we can be amazed by it in one sense by saying, well, we're not quite certain of what we're seeing, or we can be amazed by it in this other sense by saying, well, this doesn't fit into what we already know. And I don't know, so like the basic point of the whole thing was to say, the Gospels are both trying to solve this problem. And, you know, my favorite kind of shtick from the whole thing was that the Gospel of Mark tries to solve this problem of amazement by wrapping it inside a secret or a parable. Whereas the Gospels of Luke and the Gospels of John solve this problem of amazement not by wrapping divinity inside of a parable or a secret or a paradox, but inside what? Inside a human baby. Inside an actually present, real, concrete human being. And so, you know, that's the point of the way that the Gospels think about the Incarnation. Not only that God has come into the world, but that God has come into the world for us in a way that allows us to believe, in a way that is, allows us to be amazed by, to draw from that theme from Mark, to look at the seed and to wonder as it grows. And the piece that we looked at from Luke last week uses a different word that's translated as amazement. And the beautiful thing is it's not one of these ek words, not one of these out of words like amazement one or two. That word is enthalmason, and it means something like to wonder, to admire, to be astonished by, to regard with amazement, and to begin to speculate with the implication that being amazed here means, unlike those other ek words, like you're so knocked out of your person or knocked out of your context, that you can look at something and be affected by it, to be astonished by it, and to take it to heart. So I don't know, if you weren't here last week, the basic idea around the kind of faith or belief here is that uh, what Mark and what Advent and the story of the gospel is trying to point out is that you wrap the divinity of Jesus in a baby in order to help us deal with our unproductive senses of amazement. It's, a, the, it's the literal, making literal of the metaphor of the seed. And so on the Sunday for faith, we kind of concluded by saying, faith is not some effort that's about shoring up your truth or not some way of trying to create scaffolding that makes things rational for you, but like the seed or like the lamp, amazement, proper amazement, this kind of amazement that we ought to have as we contemplate the manger of Jesus' life, his growth, his death, and his resurrection is the idea that God grows in the world and that we don't have to justify the existence of God's presence as much as we have to attend to it, as much as we have to not quite adjust to it, but to see it and to let it affect us. So I don't know, when I was getting ready for thinking about what that would mean for hope, I was thinking this week, a lot about the theme of hope and uh, just because of random Netflix choices because of the war on Christmas. Like Beth made us watch a bunch of war on Christmas documentaries. We watched like, okay, there's more than that. But this is one about this guy who gets in, moves to a town in Idaho. He's a lawyer and he like puts up this giant lights display and invites a ton of people and the HOA sues him. And the funny part is like, he's, yeah, well, you can imagine where it goes. Like the I don't know, a bunch of white nationalist groups came and defended his property and he was on Fox News and, and then a bunch of people resisted him, yada, yada, yada. And it was like, I don't know, it, was, it really got me thinking about the war of Christmas. And I don't like the, the thing that really got me thinking about it is that I know that there are, you know, we have a lot of conservative friends who we're very close to. And, you know, we, we you know, we're not exactly on, you know, any particular side of the spectrum. We have strong sympathy with some, 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 some of the claims that some of our conservative friends make. But I don't know, I see in them this idea that uh, Christmas has become culturally tenuous and the main strategy for doing it, at least as they tell the story, 
is that people have taken Jesus out of the center of Christmas and they've put some other focus in the middle of it that, I don't know, using the vernacular of the sermon from last week, it might amaze us. And I, I have to be totally honest, at least as I'm thinking about it now, I don't see it that way. Here's what I see. At least the thing I can't get out of my mind as I watch not just all the stuff about the war of Christ, on Christmas, but like, I don't know, the whole series of, of different multimedia events that I've engaged this week, that some of which are secular and some of which are not, about the idea of Christmas. The thing that I see is that no matter how much we try and avoid the topic of God incarnate in the various things that we watch when we celebrate Christmas, the themes that animate the idea of God incarnate, at least in my opinion, are repetitively and nearly obsessively present in those stories, even as folks try and wash out the religious content from the Christmas narrative. You know what I mean? Like there's not a Christmas story that doesn't in some way have this moment of brokenness about the world and that can't be made right. And then there's this miraculous moment of supernatural intervention where there's faith, faith which creates the possibility of the world being made new again and we're rescued from various risks, whether it be the abominable snowman or unbelief in the guy in red or any of the things that might ruin Christmas. And finally, there's this spark of Christmas that is placed in the hearts of people that changes the world and brings it back to a state of grace. And for as much as I try and think about how the narrative of Christmas has been about eliminating the idea of Jesus, it's so funny how amazingly durable the story is. And I don't know, so of course I'd like people to know the root of that story. Of course I'd people like people to kind of encounter the idea behind that story. But to me, the problem with the war on Christmas, however you want to think about it, is not that they're exactly just there are people trying to take Jesus out of Christmas, as, as much as it is this weird idea that no one can quite eliminate the trace of Christ or of the seed or of the lamp that we were amazed at from the narrative. That even, no matter how hard people try, there's this echo in it. And that idea is literally built, and, and like I, as I think about it more, like when we think about the idea of a war on Christmas, we tend to treat Christmas as if it is our possession or the church's possession. And that idea is like literally built into the idea of a war on Christmas, which implies a separate territory between believers in Christmas and those who don't. But let me tell you the secret about the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas is not just for the church. It's not just for the faithful. The hope of Christmas is demonstrated in the gospel is for those who have been locked out and despised and ignored and for whom the presence of God seems distant or impossible. The point of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark in the form of the secret and in, 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 in the baby in, in Luke is that when Jesus comes, Jesus comes for the whole world. And because Jesus comes for the whole world, the whole world can now be different. And because the whole world can be different, we too can be renewed and redeemed. And I have to tell you, though, that, that why I find myself being constantly annoyed by the presence of a washed out Christian narrative in various cultural products that try and secularize Christmas at the same time, I find in it this amazing hope that this narrative is written on and even printed on our hearts in a way that is ineradicable. If faith is about learning how to be amazed by the truth of Jesus Christ as incarnate in a baby, hope is about taking that faith for granted and ready for it. Is it about understanding that the fact of his coming makes all things new? I mean, think about it. God makes a new thing in Genesis and declares it good. 
the Bible is constantly uh, interested in this idea of, of God's new creation being good or being made good again. Isaiah, in Isaiah, God declares that as a result of and in response to sin, that God is, has to do something new. This is the basis behind the, I don't know, you think about uh, Noah, for example. It's the central message of Jesus's ministry is that we have an old mind and we need to make that mind new. And in Revelation, when Jesus announces the work of the apocalypse that has to be done in order to es- usher in the new age, what does he say? Behold, I make all things new. If faith is about the idea that we can and should be amazed by God in a way that causes us to look more deeply into the mystery, hope is the idea that because God has actually come, things not only can but will change. I picked this little pericope from John because it basically takes up both the miracles and the themes that we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark. It's an engagement with the Pharisees. And I don't know, like we had last week, it is in the context of some feedings and healings, and it's exactly like the one we looked at last week where the basic question is the Pharisees coming to Jesus and asking on what grounds he can do those things. And so Jesus and, and John in this instance have what I think is a strikingly marked answer. Look at 19. Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the father doing it. For whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. And to your amazement, he will show him even greater works than these. I love both Gospels. I love the Gospel of Mark. I love the Gospel of John. Both of them are true and perfect as they were written and reflect a specific way of telling the story of Jesus, which is appropriate for the time and the audience that it's written. But you can't look at that 5, 19, and 20 without seeing that the Gospel of John has figured out a very compact way of talking about the problem of the messianic secret and of the parables that we saw in Mark. Right? I mean, Mark says that the identity of Jesus is based on perfect submission to the Father. And in the Gospel of John here, Jesus is saying that the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son and the Son can do nothing unless the Son sees the Father doing it. And in John, the full love of the Father and the full submission of the Son means the Son is the representation of and in fact the stand-in for the beauty and the love and the kindness and the power of the Father. Now here's the thing to solve the problem that we're looking at in the Messianic Secret and the parables. The results of this relationship as presented in John are not dependent on human testimony. They aren't dependent on the proper presentation of words. Look at 31 and 32. I testify about myself and my testimony is not valid. There's another who testifies about me and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Here Jesus is saying is that what validates him and what demonstrates who he is, and as the verses continue into 36 and 37, that what validates the identity of Jesus and the basic point of the kingdom is that he is the, I don't know, what's the way we've been saying it in the Gospel of Mark? He is the showing and not just the telling of the presence of God. He is the concrete manifestation of the presence of God. He is the living instantiation of the beauty and the perfection of the love of the Father in the incarnation of the Son. And that's why verse 19 above says what? It says something, I don't know, that is way more optimistic than Mark in the formulation of propositions not being able to get the job done. He says the Son, Jesus, is the concrete proof and manifestation of the Father. And if we, I don't know, looked at verse 20 again, what does it say? The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does, and that it is to the amazement of the crowd that is listening. To your amazement, he will show you greater works than these. Guess what amazement word that is? Amazement three. 
Not being knocked out of yourself and Thalma that you see and because Jesus is the concrete instantiation and demonstration of the Father that the person of Jesus is the proof of God the Father and therefore we're drawn into and we're brought into a relationship in a way that is much more meaningful than we'd have as opposed to the scribes who are constantly searching the word in order to figure out the secret of eternal life. I mean, look at this run in John through that light. Think of it as an extension of a condensation of Mark. And then all of a sudden, all these things like there's the theme of the lamp again. And I don't want to make too big of a deal of our focus on lamps lately. But in 36, he says, I have testimony more substantial than John's. Uh, the, father, uh, the, the Father has given me to accomplish the very works I'm doing. Test about me and fi about me and the Father has sent me. Uh, you have never heard his voice or seen that, nor does he abide in you because you do not believe the one he sent. Now hold that up for a second. Look at that, especially 38. Nor does he, his word abide in you because you do not believe the one he sent. And I want you to think about that for a second in the backdrop of all the stuff about secrets and wrapping the idea of divinity a baby, etc. Nor does his word abide in you because you do not believe the one he sent. That's what I think show versus tell is all about. I think it's the idea that the Gospel of Mark and now as condensed in the Gospel of John is trying to say something like it is not the words or propositions that matter, but it is the encounter with the person of God and specifically in the face and even the teeny little cry of Jesus that allows us to see those propositions as meaningful. And part of seeing those propositions of meaningful, coming to belief as we might think about it, I lined up all the arguments and I came to it, but beneath that all the time is this idea that we've encountered and seen the face of Jesus and been transformed by it. And in doing so, not only have we been transformed by it, but we've been able to see and to incorporate and internalize and be properly amazed by the truth. Because the point is, I think of, of the Gospels and this theme we've been looking at, and the Gospels is sometimes you need to break through something. And one of the things that we need broken through in us is our expectations about the world and about how it works and about what can expect from us. I don't know. The funny thing about prepping a sermon about hope is this. You know, Paul has a couple of mentions of it that are pretty darn good. But if you want to look for examples of the Greek word that is properly translated as hope, elpida, or its derivatives in the Gospels, guess what? It's pretty slim pickings. Luke uses it in Acts a bunch to talk about the fulfillment of promises to Israel. And there are other hope-type words in the gospel, but good old-fashioned Elpida, not so much. John used it when he talked about Moses and the Pharisees and the Pharisees putting their hopes or their expectations in Moses. And Luke uses it a handful of times in the gospel to talk about the frustrated expectations of, uh, of Herod. But this idea of hope, at least as we think about it, doesn't appear as a kind of core message in the gospel until we really dig a little bit deeper. We know that the Pharisees or the scribes were pouring over the scriptures, as Jesus says in John, because they believe in the excellence of their own propositions, will grant them eternal life. They put their hope in Moses. Jesus is calling them out and saying what a funny paradox it is that here is the embodiment of divinity in front of them, face to face with them, and they've got their noses buried in a book trying to figure out its meaning instead of encountering him face to face. He says, like he says in 39, you pour over the scriptures because you presume by them that you possess eternal life. These are the very words that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I mean, the Pharisees are smack in the middle of what we talked about last night or last week is amazement too. They've settled for their occupation and their culture and what that tells them about the person of Jesus. They have granted a kind of glory to themselves and their traditions instead of being open to the unfolding of God. Jesus, on the other hand, says what? Do not accept glory from men. 
I, but I know you, this is 41 through 44, that you ha- do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you have not received me. If someone comes in my name, you'll receive him. How can you believe if you accept glory from one another, yet do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? Now, you may recall from a sermon I did on shepherds a while back, and then one before that, like a million years ago, that the concept of glory for the Greeks was a lot different than the concept of glory that we have. For them, glory didn't mean something like, I don't know, as shiny or as incredible to behold, or even quite that it was amazing. For the Greeks, the idea of glory meant something like, I don't know, the essence or the substance of a thing as commonly beheld. And the idea is really strongly tied up with this idea that Jesus is talking about in Mark and John, about hope as a kind of expectation. I don't know, maybe one of the problems we have with hope is not just the kind of keep a step up or lip and believe things are going to go okay problem. Maybe one of the real problems we have with hope is something like the horizon for our expectation. Maybe when we think about hope, we primarily think about, I don't know, what is reasonable to expect given the existing state of things. It's like, I don't know, as the Greeks thought about this around Elpida, which is about expectation and around the idea of glory, which is about like commonly shared expectation, the way they would have thought about hope is something like this elaborate mechanism that helped us understand what we might expect out of or want out of the world. And Jesus is looking the Pharisees in the eyes and he's saying, look, y'all, like because of where you are in your job and where you sit and in your culture, you have a specific kind of expectation about what it looks like for God to enter into the world and your expectation. You need to broaden your imagination. It is not helping you see me. It is holding you back from imagining the possibility of a God that could come to you face to face and reach out to you and call to you. And Jesus's point here, look at 45. It's pretty darn clear directly. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. When Jesus talks about hope here in John, what he's saying is that there's a certain kind of hope, a certain kind of hope that is oriented around expectation that locks us pretty darn squarely into being amazed with ourselves and makes it impossible for us to see or to encounter or to have the face of Jesus break through to us. Hope, at least as the Gospels talk about it, in that sense, is about, I don't know, like accommodating ourselves to the world with positive expectations. It's like, I don't know, not, I, like it, it reminds, I saw a commercial on YouTube today for Falun Gong in America. Hey, it's like this uh, kind of uh, Chinese religious practice. And the whole sell for it was, you can be more well adjusted to a very difficult world. Which is a reasonable thing to expect out of any kind of spiritual or religious practice in some way, and it's kind of the thing that the Pharisees were looking for too. Like a lot of, and if you think about the big kind of philosophical critics of the idea of religion or the idea of belief, they're all saying it's like this equipment that helps you get through the world, maybe. It may not be true, but it's a coping mechanism. But see, the Christian idea of hope at Christmas is something totally different. And it's something that I don't know, we have to distinguish radically from a term that we've talked about before and a a dichotomy we've talked about before, we've talked about this as what? Is the difference between hope and optimism? What is the difference between a radical hope and optimism? See, I think the only way to rescue the concept of radical hope, a hope that is informed by true amazement, and that's why it follows the kind of amazement shtick, is to rigorously distinguish between what makes hope radical as opposed to what makes optimism, I don't know, 
conservative in the sense of sustaining the existing system. If hope, as in the concept of Alpida, means something like, gosh darn it, we think things are probably going to work out how we want them to, that idea is kind of empty. It kind of shades over and what, to what we might call a kind of optimistic false amazement with the state of things as they are. This optimism is neither revolutionary nor is it transformative in any sense. Instead, it's about taking the world as it is and just kind of making some tinkering at the margins to make it better. It's a kind of conservatism, not a political one, but a conservatism that says something like, the state of the world is as it's going to is as it's going to be. What is the favorite saying that everybody loved during COVID that we heard a million times? It is what it is. It is what it is. Duh. But more importantly, it is what it is, is a way of saying that we ought to expect that things will continue for the most part as they will continue. And we can make some tinkering around the margins in order to adopt ourselves to it or accommodate to it. But in the end, that is what I mean by conservativism, a kind of false amazement with the state of the world as it is. And for example, if we were Pharisees, you know, we might believe that there was a military leader who could set us free. Or I don't know if we were Americans living in 2021 and now almost 2022, we could put our faith in technology and progress and the goodness of our fellow human beings that we will eventually be able to figure stuff out and, I don't know, cure the virus, figure out our divisions and unite together and hope for some common human human aspirations. Doesn't sound entirely likely to me on its own terms. It isn't, I don't know, an understanding of a commitment to the idea that we buy our own propositions and we buy our own reasons and we can reason through some combination of being amazed with ourselves and our own acumen to make things better. But the hope of Christmas is not a hope that says it is what it is. It is not a hope that says that the current order can be perfected or extended to make the world better or safer or kinder or more gentle or to have a shout out to Radiohead here. That kind of hope puts us in a world where we understand the goal to be being fitter, happier, more productive citizens. The hope of Christmas shatters the frame that says it is what it is. It shatters the expectations that make that frame possible. The hope of Christmas should give us security in the sense that we know that God is in control because God has sent a baby as a message, as a sign, and as a concrete instantiation to redeem us. But the hope of Christmas should knock us out of our optimism because it tells us that the possibility that the world is not what it is, but that it can be made new again. And that's the real difference. You can call it religious commitment. You can call it piety. You can call it faith. You can call it a practice of mindfulness. You can call it whatever you think it means. But the point of the hope of Christmas is that in opposition, to those things which are about making you feel better about a world that is broken. The hope of Christmas is to make you feel more uncomfortable in a world that is broken and to double down on the idea that the coming of Jesus Christ will not accommodate us to an unjust order, nor will it support that order, but instead it will smash it. And in doing so, it will make the world new and it will make our relationships new and it will make everything around us new, not because of our own effort, but because of an announcement that was made to shepherds on a hill a long time ago in Jerusalem, Luke 2. The shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shored around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. This will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in a cloth and and lying in a manger. Though I would love to, I'm not for the third time going to tell the story of why it is that the angel makes the announcement to the shepherds, except to say the shepherds are locked out in at least two senses. 
First, they're Jewish, and their immediate history had been one of the Greeks taking over and ransacking Jerusalem. The Greeks even, I just learned about this the other day, the Greeks even sacrificed a pig and spread its blood all over the temple, and they set up Greek gods within the internal bounds of the temple. That had happened in the last 100 years for these guys. And they'd seen the Maccabees kind of sweep in, and just as Trey mentioned, there is the miracle of the oil that went on for days, and they'd saw their kind of hopes restored. And then they, what did they see? They saw those guys get crushed, and then they saw the Greeks be crushed by the Romans. And I don't know if you're an Orthodox Jewish shepherd who lives out in the fields and believes what you believe and believes in the glory of Israel, then man, it ought to have been pretty depressing that not only that you were hoping for a Messiah, but that you'd seen a Messiah and seen a Messiah be crushed, and then the one who crushed the Messiah be crushed by a bigger, badder empire. Things did not look good. Second, even though the Romans had allowed for the traditions of the temple to be resumed and even installed scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees who were able to administer those, as you know, the shepherds were maybe the most marginal of the participants in that sacrificial economy. They were ritually unclean by virtue of working with animals and by virtue of being so poor. So as we've talked about before, the sad paradox is that those shepherds who raised the sheep, who made the whole temple system possible, would never cross through the gates in order to fully access the conditions of redemption. And in a third cruel twist of fate, the Romans had rigged the game so that while the elite of Jerusalem would cooperate with them and clothe them in the garment of piety, those shepherds sat out in those fields, locked out for every possible reason you can imagine, economic, cultural, and any other kind of line of social exclusion that you could think of. Imagine going to those guys and say, hey guys, chin up, be optimistic. Things are going to get better. If you understand hope, to be about optimism, then ask yourself this, what optimistic advice or word of encouragement could you give to a poor, powerless shepherd about how they might navigate the complex religious and economic barriers that prevented them from accessing the possibility of redemption? And once you figure that one out, figure out what possible piece of optimistic advice you could give to a devout Jew about how they might bring back the glory of Israel. And then when you get over those two optimisms, let's say that you're a person who not only thinks about the character of Israel, but thinks about the brokenness of the whole world and considers it a possibility that God loves not only Israel, but all of broken humanity, including the Romans and the Greeks. And what words of optimistic encouragement could be up to the task of telling people that in a world where it is what it is, somehow a broken system of broken people with broken motives infused by evil at the core that is woven into its very being could somehow make that right. The gospel of John does not promise words. It promises the word. It promises a word who has existed eternally and who is doing what uh, he does by coming to dwell with us in flesh. And the gospel of Luke does not give us something to be optimistic about. It gives us something to celebrate about and to be a cause for joy. And the difference here is that the reason why it's a cause for joy is not because it's a doctrine or a proposition or some probabilistic sense that things are going to get better. But what does the angel say? What does the angel say? The angel says, and this is the closest and most beautiful iteration of hope that I can think of here. He says that baby lying in the manger will be what? a sign. Semion is the Greek word for it. And it does mean a sign, like we might think about an image that represents something, a word can be thought of as a sign, but for the Greeks it also meant something like the concrete proof of, or the material corroboration of. It also for the Greeks meant a miracle or a signal. And if honestly, if this doesn't just rip out your heart or boggle your mind, there's a good argument that this word sign is derived from a common stem and or heritage that guess what? Parallels the Greek root words for seed. 
Hope then is not that different from amazement. It is not really, really believing that things are going to get better. It's not being positive in the face of things that are difficult. It's about going to those guys in the field who would have had no use for your optimism or encouragement, who had been beat up and pushed around and told they were worthless both by their kin and by kings. And it was looking them in the eye with that glorious announcement from that angel and promising not just that things might get incrementally better, but by saying, because this baby has come, you should have the audacious hope that in that seed, things can be made new, that the world can start again, and that all the silly fantasies that we see in every Christmas movie, secular or not, I even mean diehard here, are real, that the order of sin and death and destruction can and will be defeated, but not only defeated once and for all, but instead imagine it being defeated forever, and we may die before the cosmos catches up, and the death may hold sway for a bit, but the hope that grows out of an amazement with what God has done for us in the baby Jesus Christ, the hope that grows out of the amazement and the wonder of the all-powerful God speaking out in the form of the most fragile cry you can imagine on a desert night. It only ensures for us, but it compels us to live with a reality that is hard to process, but nevertheless real, that things can and will change because things have already been made new because he has come. And yes, he will die. And yes, he will rise. But he is making all things new again. And our hope is built on nothing less. Amen.